Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. There are abundant signs that Special Counsel Jack Smith is closing in on another proposed indictment of Donald Trump. This one growing out of the series of schemes to try to steal the election away from Joe Biden. Reading the prosecutorial tea leaves, a prime focus of Smith's investigation is the cadre of lawyers in on the big lie, the so-called team crazy. And in particular, a six-hour impromptu meeting between this team crazy and team normal, more sober figures like the White House counsel that degenerated into screaming and near fisticuffs, and that was followed by Trump's infamous tweet summoning supporters. Big protest in D.C. on January 6th, be there, will be wild. While the scraps of available evidence point to some case involving Trump and centered on post-election events, the scope and timing of charges remains difficult to predict. Meanwhile, in the Mar-a-Lago case, Trump co-conspirator and, so far, loyal cheesesteak pal Walt Nauta managed to secure local counsel nearly one month after the indictment came down and entered a plea of not guilty to charges including conspiracy with co-conspirator Trump to obstruct justice. We are just beginning to absorb the implications of the series of bombshell decisions that the Supreme Court issued at the end of its term. Those decisions laid waste to decades of precedence in multiple areas and stripped fundamental policy choices from federal, state, and local governments, as well as public and private universities. They are likely to reverberate through American society for years to come. To work through all the clues from the Smith investigations and to assess the immediate fallout from the Supreme Court's 6-3 conservative route. I'm very happy to welcome three of the country's sharpest analysts of law and politics. And they are Laura Jarrett, the senior legal correspondent for NBC News, where she covers the DOJ and the Supreme Court, among other legal beats. Previously, she worked at CNN for six years, including anchoring the network's early, deadly early morning program, Early Start. And she was a practicing lawyer in Chicago before turning to journalism. And I'm really proud to say a kind of a regular now on Talking Feds. Laura, thanks as always for coming back. Luckily for me. Thank you, Harry. (laughs) And two first timers. Very exciting. Starting with Sadie Gurman, a Wall Street Journal reporter covering also the DOJ federal law enforcement with an emphasis on the intersection of politics and law. She's covered law enforcement and legal issues for 17-plus years, including for the AP, where I used to work, her hometown Denver Post, and my hometown, Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. It's her first time on Talking Feds. Sadie, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having me. And Lisa Rubin, a former litigator and the current off-air legal analyst for The Rachel Maddow Show, never sure what that means, and Alex Wagner tonight. She's also an on-air legal analyst and an excellent one for MSNBC. For those of us still on Twitter who haven't jumped ship for threads, Lisa's thoughtful and informative tweets, which you can find at Law of Ruby, 
are really one of the best ways to stay uh, current. And I, I don't say that lightly. She's a really go-to source for me. It is also her first time on Talking Feds. Thanks very much for being here, Lisa Rubin. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's start with the many developments this week in the various Trump investigations. You know, it's always important to remember that we only see a fraction of special counsel Jack Smith's work. But even from our limited vantage point, I think it's plain that he's aggressively investigating a panoply of possible crimes by Trump and his circle, including in the months after the 2020 election. So not just Mar-a-Lago. Sadie, let me start with you because you reported earlier this week that prosecutors from his team are now zeroing in on a number of lawyers who were among Trump's most you know, ardent defenders to the end. Who are we talking about and what's the significance of their being in a Smith's crosshairs? Well, these are people like Sidney Powell, who was a pro-Trump lawyer who spread baseless claims of voter fraud. There's an increasing interest on people who work with her, including other lawyers like Emily Newman and somebody named Mike Roman, who is a Republican operative who worked heading Election Day operations for the Trump campaign. This is a person who sent lawyers into swing states before November 2020. There's also an increasing focus on people like Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, Kenneth Cheesebro. These are people who were interacting with Trump, you know, encouraging him to seek different ways to overturn his election loss, including encouraging a plan to send false slates of electors to Congress. That has been a big focus of Jack Smith's investigation. But what is really interesting about these latest developments is that the special counsel has been interviewing these people voluntarily under what is known as a proffer agreement. So people like Rudy Giuliani have gone in and basically spoken with investigators for hours as part of something called a queen for a day agreement, which basically the witness provides unfettered testimony or you know interview information with the agreement and understanding that that would not be used against them and potential criminal proceedings later on. So that's interesting because it suggests that the special counsel's office is actively seeking people who would cooperate and are building a case going up and up and up and really getting closer to Trump and Trump's inner orbit. Let me add just a couple prosecutors' points to what Sadie says. First, just as you say, you're always looking for people to cooperate up, and we're at a level when you're talking Giuliani, where, you know, there's nowhere up to go, I think, except to the Oval Office. But on this queen for a day notion, so it was very significant to me. This was Roman, who was the director of election operations, his queen for a day, which I'll get to in a moment, was preceded by the testimony of his deputy. And this is the prosecutorial machine just humming along the way you want it to. He goes in and fesses up, and Roman, who to date has been arm's length and took the fifth many times in the January 6th committee, and Giuliani are all of a sudden gulping and running in what was called a voluntary and professional and meeting was really the two of them proffering with their lawyers, hey, this is the information I can give you. Mm -hmm. Will you evaluate it to maybe give me a deal as well? And it's known that if you're late to the party, you might not get a deal. But that general dynamic that they are now finally rushing in seems to me to really speak of their lawyer's knowledge that this is turning pretty tightly is the vise and they better jump in while they can. Um, Lisa, I see you sort of nodding at that. 
Well, I think one of the things that's really interesting about Rudy's proffer in particular is that he didn't just go in voluntarily. He wanted the world to know that he went in voluntarily, including retweeting the CNN story, first reporting about his voluntary proffer agreement. And you might ask, what interest does Rudy Giuliani have in the world knowing that he went in voluntarily and through a proffer agreement? I would venture a guess that part of what Rudy's trying to do is also signal to Georgia prosecutors, in particular Fulton County, where Fonnie Willis, her investigation continues, that he has an interest in potentially cutting a deal with her, too. She's called him a target, right? Right. And to the extent that there is a deal to be made with DOJ and Rudy, and I'm not sure that there is, particularly because his credibility is such that it's not clear how that would play with a jury, right? I mean, Harry, you can assess that much better than I can from the vantage point of being a former prosecutor. But if there is a deal to cut with the feds, that's an incomplete deal for Rudy and his lawyer, Bob Costello, unless he can also cut an arrangement with Fonnie Willis. Because if he continues to have criminal exposure in Georgia, where in particular he could not be pardoned by any president of either party, that's not necessarily a great deal for him. To cooperate federally and not cooperate or cut a deal in Georgia leaves him sort of half-dressed, right? And you want to have all of those I's dotted and T's crossed if you're willing to cross that Rubicon. Laura, you've been a litigator. So Giuliani, he is, I mean, they're going to evaluate two things, the value of his information, but his value as a witness. He's, to say the least, an erratic figure in the last few years. How do you think he would even play on the stand? And what kind of appeal does he hold for Smith at this point? Well, I was thinking about it from the defense perspective, because the few times when I sat in on proper sessions, I sat on it as a former defense attorney in the corporate setting, telling my client the most important thing is that you have to be completely truthful, because if you're not, you're screwed in a session like this. Yeah, they can prosecute you if you lie. Exactly. Yeah, sorry, and so there's a certain amount of risk going into it for Giuliani, not to say that he would lie, but you have to be truthful with them and you can't hold back. And given how sprawling this investigation is and how many different tentacles it seems to have, it's not nearly as cabined and neat in a box the way the classified documents situation is. And it just shows you like the drips and drabs that we've gotten out of this investigation Despite all the amazing reporting that Sadie is doing, I think back to like the fact that Sadie broke the piece of the Florida investigation, which sort of like had this enormous outpouring of all this other stuff is because Sadie said, oh, by the way, there's a grand jury in Florida. And then all of a sudden everybody was like, what? And it just like touched off a firestorm. Yay, Sadie, it's Thanks. true. No, yeah. truly, it was her like one line in the Wall Street Journal that everybody was like, wait a minute, there's something happening in Florida. But anyway, it just strikes me that there's so much that we don't know about what's going on on the Jan 6 piece of this. And even we shorthand it as the Jan 6 piece of it, but it's so much broader than that. And we don't really know yet the complete value, I think, of what Jack Smith could get out of Rudy, assuming that he's even willing to play ball and there's a lot of ifs, ands, and buts, and, and maybe they don't need him to. We don't know yet. But it's just it's just striking to me, one, how much... They're still left to report on on this. 
And yet we're at the point where Rudy's sitting down for a proffer, which to your point, Harry, suggests to me that this is pretty far along. That's not something that's going to happen at the beginning. That to me seems like something that would happen at the end. And it also suggests to me that we're talking about things that only Rudy knows. So there's been a lot of reporting this week about the Fed's interest in this December 18th, 2020 meeting at the Oval Office that was well attended by everyone from Sidney Powell and Byrne and Flynn to a litany of voices on the White House side, from Derek Lyons to Eric Hirschman to Cipollone and Philbin, et cetera. Who ran in, though, after the others just showed up. Right. Right. And Rudy then gets on the phone and Robert O'Brien gets on the phone. And there's a lot of interest in that. But one of the reasons I think they're interested in talking to Rudy in particular is because that meeting migrates from the Oval Office to the residence. And after the White House folks basically say, you've gotten your advice, you make your decision, you decide who to listen to, they leave. In the middle of the night, Trump makes a decision that Sidney Powell is not going to be a special counsel for investigating election fraud after all. And within a couple of hours, issues his infamous be there will be wild tweet. That strikes me as a pivot point in what the focus of their election fraud allegations were, sort of moving from the let's seize voting machines, there's lots of foreign interference, to let's convince people that they should go along with making Trump the victor through state legislators and a rally on January 6th and potentially Pence himself. But those are things only Rudy knows because Rudy stayed behind. And we believe that they've talked to Mark Meadows at this point. So if we're thinking about what value does Rudy have, it's about conversations where either only Rudy was present with the president or they're looking to confirm that the accounts they've gotten from a litany of other people are what, in fact, transpired. I just think it's interesting that even as they are sort of mining Rudy for this information, they're asking other witnesses questions about Rudy's actions. And I think it was just a few days after Rudy went in and spoke with investigators for something like eight hours that investigators went to Georgia and interviewed the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, asking him questions not only about Trump's efforts to pressure him on that very famous perfect phone call, or that wasn't the perfect phone call, that was another perfect phone call. Um, So many perfect phone calls. What other kind does he make? Right. I think he would say that phone call is perfect, but also asking questions about Rudy himself and his interactions with him. So it's clear that they're still looking at Rudy, both in Georgia and at the federal level. Right. And nothing about going in stops that. It's a really great point. And in particular, I really want to second what Lisa has to say about Mark Meadows. I mean, it's as good an illustration as we have. We just don't know what Smith is already sitting on. But let me follow up on Laura's point about the many tentacles. January 6th really subdivides into what, five anyway, different crimes, the pressure on state officials, the false electors, the DOJ quasi-coup, the Pence strong-arming, and finally the melee. Do you have a sense, to the extent it looks as if Smith is readying some set of charges that involve that whole period, whether he's looking kind of big or small, is he going to start with something well contain that has a better shot of coming to market quickly? To me, it's a really big question mark because some of the people that we've talked to who have gone in and their attorneys have described the line of questioning as more in line with like putting together a special counsel report as opposed to building a criminal case. Like there are people who were questioned by Jack Smith's team in the Mar-a-Lago investigation felt like they were asking specific questions that would yield criminal charges. And conversely, on this side of the house, 
They were asking questions that looked more like they were working on sort of a broader report, some type of summary, just trying to sort of dot all the I's and cross all the T's. So it's kind of unclear where they're headed with this. But I think the fact that they are offering proffers suggests that there must be some criminal charges in the offing. So it really is a, an open book, in my opinion. I feel like the role of lawyers on that piece, Sadie, is so interesting because the way that the former president uses lawyers both as like an instrument for his means and then the way that they sort of become witnesses in like some of these key alleged crimes, right? Like the Everett Corcoran role as it relates to the classified documents situation is just like so fascinating on so many different levels. I don't know if there's going to be a corollary as it relates to January 6th in terms of, you know, someone being used as an instrument unwittingly at the time. I don't know if anybody that you've talked to, Sadie, has has reflected on that, but it just, it seems like Trump uses his lawyers when he thinks it inures to his benefit. And he certainly has like a very specific view of how he thinks that lawyers are supposed to operate on his behalf, Mm -hmm. whether they're personal lawyers, whether they're government lawyers, whether they're DOJ lawyers. He thinks if they're doing, you know, his work, then all is well. I don't know if you have reporting on that, but I just the role of lawyers in this entire investigation just continues to fascinate me. It's super interesting. If I can add one quick thing before going to say, which is it's not just lawyers, but I don't think these guys are unwitting. That is the Sydney Powell's and Jenna Ellis's and Giuliani's right. of the world are exactly the people who come late December and January will tell him what he wants to hear. And that's what they're doing there. Same with Jeff Clark and others. You know, Sidney Powell, it's all Hugo Chavez and Venezuela will say the craziest ass stuff. And that's all coming home to roost. And of course, for lawyers, they also have ethical responsibilities and their their slavishness and just telling him what he wanted to hear then is what's put them in hot water. You know, I mean, it really shows that they're looking to try to get a better sense of Trump's mindset, even if they don't end up pursuing charges against him. The fact that they're questioning all these people and asking questions about these people and about their interactions with Trump says that they are still trying to answer that question and trying to see who it was that he was listening to and what thoughts they were putting in his head. So the fact that they are the focus, I think, suggests that that is still a central focus of their investigation. One thing that's outstanding for me is, Harry, you mentioned sort of five different strands. And let me suggest a sixth, which is the way in which the campaign continued to fundraise off yeah, of allegations sure. of fraud, despite evidence that there wasn't any fraud, right? This is the role, according to reporting, at least, this is the role of those two forensic reports, one commissioned from Berkeley Research, and I can't remember what the entity was that did the other. But the fact that the campaign had access to those reports, as well as to raw election data and a variety of places where they were alleging fraud took place, and nonetheless told their small donors in a variety of email communications that they needed their money to continue to investigate and fight the fraud and turn the election for Donald Trump, money that was then not used for litigation purposes at all, but really to line the coffers of what became Save America and pay legal expenses for people caught up in the investigation stemming from their involvement in perpetrating the big lie. I think is the biggest question mark for me about what Jack Smith and his team intend to do about that. Because as you and I and Laura and Sadie all know, that is a sort of 
thread of factual allegations that lend itself very easily, not just to campaign finance charges, but to a very simple theory of wire fraud. And it's exactly. much easier to prosecute that kind of a crime than it is to prosecute some of the other crimes that people are contemplating with respect to January 6th, whether it be seditious conspiracy or conspiracy to defraud the U.S. or obstruction of an official proceeding. All of those seem to require um, a breadth of evidence that we're not sure if they're sitting on or not in terms of provability in court. But the wire fraud thesis, essentially, seems a lot simpler to me. It's a great point. It's a clean case, and it's the only one I think you're very right to add. It's the only one that Smith seems to have generated on his own. And the others are the various chapters from January 6th, and this one for sure he's looking at. You know, again, always the caveat of who knows what else is there, especially Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows. Let me just ask, everyone seems to take this for granted, but part of the, what makes this timeline exigency is just the normal life cycle of a DOJ case. I'm from Pittsburgh, where Sadie used to be the reporter. There's now the big hate crime massacres, capital case now in Pittsburgh. That took, you know, it was 2018, I think, five years to come to fruition. And likewise here, these cases would take a lot of time to build. But DOJ, Garland have really gotten a lot of heat for it. Is it their job? And I'm not, I don't mean this is a rhetorical question. I'm, I'm, you know, wondering your thoughts to be focused on November 2024 and the real, if very capricious possibility that Trump or another Republican wins and orders DOJ to stand down and everything crumbles. Is that something that they should properly be playing hurry up ball as a result? Or should they be ignoring as part of Garland's watchword of, just take everything as as if it's a generic person and not the former president. In a utopia, in a perfect world, you know, they would not be considering the politics of this, but I think it's totally unavoidable. And certainly there are election sensitivities policies at DOJ that would be front of mind in any of these investigations. But I just also think practically they are definitely looking forward to that date, you know, for the past 10 years now, seven years, they've been dogged by allegations of meddling in elections and the FBI and DOJ want to stay as far away from that as possible. That's why Jack Smith has promised a speedy trial in the Mar-a-Lago case. They want to get this done before that happens. It's That may not come to pass, but I think it is certainly something that they're thinking of in the way that they do not want to be viewed as swaying an election in either outcome. I'm always troubled by what's the timing that would satisfy anybody, right? Like, if he indicts him again today on January 6th-related issues, there's certainly going to be plenty of people that said he waited too long, uh, he's been dragging his feet, the FBI held them up, and then there's going to be the camp that feels like Trump has done nothing wrong and will never buy into any sort of prosecution brought by anyone that has the Justice Department behind them. And so whether or not he wraps a trial up by 2024 almost seems like there's a no-win situation for, for Jack Smith. So what's the point of considering any of it? Don't the voters have everything they need at this point? It's a really good point. Let me add one thing. There is no way if it's tomorrow and it's a jaywalking case, the appeals will still right. be going. 
come the election. And that means there's not a question of self-pardoning or any thorny constitutional issue. The new president in the United States, President DeSantis or Trump, just orders DOJ exactly. to stand down and it's all done. So look, a great point. Let me just go around the horn with a very quick seat of the pants assessment. If people have any guesstimates about timing and people. So who who besides Trump is most in the crosshairs, do you think? And when's your best guess of timing? Just boom, boom. And then let's move on to Mar-a-Lago. I'll venture a guess. I think that if Smith is going to charge in this case, it probably behooves him to do it by August. I don't know that I see November 24 as necessarily being the extant date, but I definitely see the next inauguration of the president as being that for the reasons, Harry, that you identified, right? Which is, even if you're midstream in an appeal, if Trump were to take office again or a Republican were to take office again, all you do is have to cite that OLC memo and say, there is no prosecution that can lie against a sitting president, call off the dogs, the case is over. And then we sort of have a constitutional crisis, right? Because that is only an OLC policy. It doesn't have the force of law. And the question of whether a president can be prosecuted while they are holding office is really an open question, at least as far as courts are concerned. So I think it behooves them to bring a case if they're going to do so by mid-August. I think they probably will, how broadly or narrowly, I don't know. And if I were a betting person about who else is in the direct crosshairs of that, my top two guesses would be Rudy and Meadows, followed by Sidney Powell, and maybe folks like Chesbro, Jenna Ellis, and John Eastman, as well as Jeff Clark. There are probably others as well whose involvement is still a little bit more nebulous. For example, we know Scott Perry's phone was seized. We don't know what prosecutors found on it. We do know that there were other phones seized as well. Boris's phone has been seized and searched. What they found on that? That would be Boris Epstein, the great meddler. Yes. And one of the big open questions yep. for me is how concrete the evidence of interference and fraud were on some of the electronic devices that they've seized, whether it's Jeff Clark's or John Eastman's or Scott Perry's or Barception's. There are a lot of folks whose phones have been seized by DOJ pertinent to this investigation, as well as a question raised by people like Marcy Wheeler online who say, look, Rudy's devices were seized in reference to another investigation. But the fact that they were seized in that investigation doesn't mean there wasn't a warrant that was granted to search those devices for other purposes later down the line in ways that we still don't know about. So all of those things are sort of open questions for me, but those are my leading targets and best guess on timing. Awesome. You don't, you guys don't have to, but anyone want to chime in? I just feel like, I don't know, it's a, it's just a, such a guess. I know, the reporters are like, no, leave it to the analyst. <laughs> it's only fair for, I think, for me to venture into. I So I'm predicting with no real reason, except I just have respect for what he's done so far and, and a sense of speed that it'll be relatively small gauge. I think Mark Meadows is a great point, but my best guess, they've already cut the deal. And man, would that be... George Terwilliger, his lawyer, genius move if he's not pleading to something. I think he will plead to something. I'm thinking about Rudy Giuliani and maybe Eastman. Okay, all of that completely understood to be just uh, seat of the pants. 
Let's go to something that is more concrete, the actual prosecution pending in Mar-a-Lago. So the magistrate unsealed a few more snippets on the affidavit that was used for the search. Did we learn anything of significance from the the little bit more that was revealed? I'm seeing a yes from Ms. Rubin. What do you got? Oh, and I'm seeing a no from Jared. We got, we got a fight. Okay, so... Lisa? I mean, look, I think the things that we learned that were new were incremental. So when I say they're significant, I say that as a person who fixates on the details <laughs> here and not as a lay person, right? Why we follow your Twitter feed. <laughs> follow it for the fixation on the small details that nobody else cares about. I care, Lisa. I, I, I know care. you do, Harry, and I love you for it. Yeah. Things I thought were significant are sort of twofold. One, Walt Nauta is referred to as witness five throughout the affidavit. That means in the still sealed portions, if you talk to former prosecutors, witnesses one through four are referenced. And even though we know what evidence they had, both from the indictment and the unsealed portions of the affidavit, we don't know who they got them through and what those people's participation in it was. So I'm really curious about who witnesses one through four are and what they said as of August 5th of 2022 that justified saying we have probable cause to search Mar-a-Lago. But the other thing that I'm really interested in is paragraph 70, because paragraph 70 effectively says they not only knew that Walt Nauta had been moving boxes, but they knew where he had been moving them to. And that's not a determination that came from the surveillance footage, because based on the description of what the surveillance footage showed, they had four cameras in the basement of Mar-a-Lago that showed effectively who was entering and leaving that storage room. But it didn't show you where they were taking things, nor did anything else that's unsealed in the affidavit reveal to you how they know by August of 2022 where those things are being taken. And yet you still have an agent saying, we have established, not we have reason to believe, we have established that there is still classified information on the premises and that at least some of the F POTUS moving former president of the United States boxes have been moved to other places on the premises, including the residence and Pine Hall, which is the ante room or outside chamber to the residence. How do they know that? They likely know that through a combination of things. Well, after the snippet, of course, there remains all the blacked out parts that Correct. sort of explain it. But they right. do know 64 out, 31 in. Yeah. Yeah. And so they know that either through email and text communications, the likes of which are excerpted in the indictment itself, or they know that from some combination of witnesses one through four or all of the above. But in some respects, what we don't know is still more prominent than what we do but we have a sense of where they might be getting these things and what they knew by August that is revelatory. The other thing that it's clear that they didn't know by last August was whether Evan Corcoran himself was complicit in the fraud. They knew that he hadn't searched anywhere but the storage room. But by reading the affidavit and the unsealed portions, right. it's pretty clear that DOJ didn't have an opinion as of that point about whether Corcoran was in on it or not. And obviously, they've now come to the view that Corcoran was himself deceived by some combination of Nauta, Trump, and perhaps others that wasn't clear to them last August. Or any thoughts, or maybe you want to just demur, which, you know, she the is giving smaller points. Redacted. But yeah, go ahead. The best part <laughs> is still redacted. And I don't think Lisa's saying otherwise, All right? All the juicy stuff yeah. is redacted. 
Yeah. He, he's been indicted. We know it. The jig is up. Yeah. I'm the trees and Laura is the forest is basically what you're learning here. <laughs> I just want to talk a little bit about Walt Nalto. What the hell? He seems to have competent counsel, I think, even though it's being paid for by Trump. I'm sure having been at DOJ, he got offered a very sweetheart deal, which is probably still on the table. And at least so far, he's, you know, still joined at the hip or at, at Pat or Gino's cheesesteak place in Philly with Trump. Why does he remain so firmly in Trump's camp, do you think? And will that abide? That's one of the great questions in this whole saga. But, you know, people close to him and people close to Trump do not think that he will waver in any way. And they think that he will be steadfastly alongside Trump uh, to the bitter end. And what's their thinking, Sadie, in assessing it that way? It's personal. They have a, a deep history together. I mean, this was somebody who worked with him in the White House, who fetched his cokes and was just a, kind of a body man for him at every turn and then went to Mar-a-Lago with him when a lot of other people wouldn't do that. And so, you know, for whatever reason, there's that loyalty. And I don't think we're going to see that change. Two words, Michael Cohen. Yeah. People used to say, up and down, that man is so loyal. He's been with Trump forever. He's totally in his camp. All it takes is someone to be facing serious prison time and have the reality of that set in. I think we have all probably had clients, uh, and Sadie, you've probably seen this in reporting, who are just, you know, dug in on something and then sort of the reality sets in. And I think we just don't know yet. I think it's too early to tell. And I hope for his sake that he's being advised in a clear-eyed sense of what exactly he's facing. But of course, there are the Weisselbergs of the wor world and there are the Coens of the world. And so I'm not saying that he will eventually flip, but I just think it's early days for him. The deal will remain on the table. I think that's right. I have a theory about Walt Nauta and why his incentive structure is different than the usual criminal defendant. And like Laura, when I was in private practice, I represented white collar defendants too. And I think one of the things that differs for Walt Nauta is his co-defendant is a person who potentially has pardon power in the future. You know, we were talking about and gaming out the timing of a potential indictment on January 6th and the fact that by January of 2025, it may well be within Trump's power to stop any ongoing prosecution, much less pardon himself and or others. If you're Walt Nauta, you might be counting on that, right? That you could get convicted and yet uh, through the appeals process and because you're a first-time offender, not do any time until the next president takes office. And you might really believe that person is going to be Donald Trump. And so you're willing to let him, A, pay your legal bills, B, still employ you and at a level of compensation that might be greater than you could command outside of that, and C, await the results of the election, or at least get much closer to it to determine what you're going to do. So I just think based on who his co-defendant is, based on the timing of the election, and based on his history as a Navy guy where loyalty is prized above all else, he is psychologically a different person and has a different incentive structure given the facts here than maybe other people would have in his position. If we were to advise Laura or I in private practice somebody like this, I can't imagine we would advise them to do anything but cooperate. And yet the reporting is that Walt Nauta desperately wanted someone who had never been a prosecutor because he didn't want to be pressured by someone like the Guy Petrillos of the world to go and proffer to his former buddies at the U.S. Attorney's Office or at Maine Justice. 
And that is what he got. You know, I basically agree with you with one counterpoint. The counterpoint to the pardon is I'm pretty confident that he's offered a deal and it will remain. So that's the waiting game that Laura's talking about that doesn't involve time. But I think as so often the kind of mafia analogy really has resonance here. He's a guy who was sort of very obscure, a kid of immigrants, and all of a sudden he's consorting with the president of the United States. I think in his mind, he thinks, maybe I do a little bit of time, maybe not. But then from there on in for the rest of my life, I'm cloistered by this Trump family that that's come to love me. And you know, in the long run, uh, it works out kind of like a lower-level mafia guy. Anyway, we'll see. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we uncork the notion of drinking bottled wine versus canned wine. Yeah, wine in a can. Wine connoisseurs may stay true to the bottle, but wine canisseurs have adopted the untraditional packaging for its added convenience, ideal for picnics, concerts, and outdoor events, really anywhere corkscrews are scarce. And since aluminum cools faster than glass, it reduces the time it takes to chill your favorite Sauvignon Blanc. But swirling your wine in a glass does help it open up, which gives it a lot more flavor. Of course, you can always transfer your canned wine to a glass, but if you're looking to experience the subtleties of a nice bottle, drinking from a glass adds a lot. There are wines more suited to the bottle, and there are those well-suited for the canned life. Crisp and sparkling whites and rosés in particular tend to fare best in cans, but bigger, bolder wines will usually benefit from a nice glass. It would seem both have their place. Still on the fence between bottles or cans? There's always wine in a box. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine and More for today's A Spirited Debate. I wanted to move to the aftermath of the huge Supreme Court decisions of last week. So, look, I feel like the country is, and I certainly feel like I am uh, experiencing the aftershocks 
of a series of decisions that the court handed down in the last few days of its term. I just want to talk a little bit about what happens next. So starting with affirmative action, kind of an odd case, it seemed to me, because the majority seemed very categorical, no consideration of race. This whole experiment is over. But they pointedly, maybe deceptively, failed to overrule these previous cases. There's something at the end of Robert's opinion that almost seems an invitation to come to the same place through different routes. Sotomayor basically says at the end, it doesn't matter. This is this will still continue. Harvard basically said that the day after. So leaving the opinion to the, the side, and we could and should talk you know, for hours about it and the others. What of affirmative action and some use of race in college admissions decisions after the opinions in the North Carolina and Harvard cases? Seems to me Ed Bloom, who was sort of the architect of these cases from the very beginning, conservative financier who has made it his mission to get rid of affirmative action in higher education, is going to be busy for the next couple of years going after people's essays because the chief justice includes this enormous sort of caveat to the general rule that race alone shouldn't be outcome determinative anymore. However, the problem is that if somebody can write an essay saying, I grew up on the south side of Chicago and here are all the ways that race impacted my life and is inextricably linked into to my identity and Amherst College decides, you know what, I think that's really important to how I see Laura Jarrett's application. And then Ed Bloom gets discovery as a process of lawsuits and discovers, actually, there's there have been quite a few of those cases, quite a few of those edge cases. It just seems like, again, we're just going to be going through this in five years. And if one of the goals of the court should be to be able to provide clear directives to not only lower courts, but the country in an administrative way that's practicable for higher education, I'm not sure where this leaves them. It's an irony of this case because that kid from Chicago might otherwise have been talking about robotics or jujitsu, but you can be sure now that there's going to be five times the essays there were before talking about personal experiences based on you know racial groups. One of the things that strikes me is the ways in which this opinion invites institutions of higher education to be deceptive internally, right? Because if you're taking away lessons from this and you don't want anything to change the way Harvard's statement assures its student body and its alumni population, it won't. And the same with lots of other competitive universities and programs. What it's essentially saying to people is move away from formulas move away from point-based systems, move to a much more nebulous way of admitting students where you can't assign a value to something like the essay so that we can thwart further litigation efforts and we they can't prove that we have engaged in racial discrimination because we don't have any rules. It almost invites people to talk interstitially about how they do this process, right? Hushed conversations instead of emails, nothing in writing about how many points to assign to this factor or that factor, whether it's the transcript or the essay or recommendations. It just makes it all the more a black box, how some of these institutions do their admissions. And I don't know that anybody is served by that. The other thing 
that strikes me is just whether or not the Department of Education will see a rise in the kind of complaints that we saw last week, right? There's no private right of action under Title VI now to sue for the kind of ALDC admissions that's athletes, legacies, dean's lists, children of faculty kind of favoritism that many institutions show. And so if you're going to complain about that kind of affirmative action, you have to do it through a complaint to the Department of Education itself. And if the Department of Education finds that there is sufficient justification for a violation of Title VI, then it can either prosecute that case or refer it to the Department of Justice. It certainly elongates the timeline of litigation over these ALDC factors, but it also might invite a wave of complaints to the department that it is currently ill-prepared for because those complaints based on Supreme Court precedent in Alexander versus Sandoval can no longer go to courts themselves. All right. I want to ask the same question in our dwindling time about 303 creative. This is the Colorado case involving the website designer who didn't want to use her services for a same-sex couple. Court held that anti-discrimination law couldn't be enforced against her because it would be compelled speech in violation of the First Amendment. So do you have thoughts about, is there a limiting principle? Has the court just opened the door to the expression of private discriminatory views kind of across society? And how will this opinion play out going forward. One of the things I find so curious and vexing and perhaps predictable about this is for all of the ire and frustration with the court over this case, certainly from progressives, there has been relatively little, I would say, about the former Colorado Attorney's General's office that essentially gave away the store. With the stipulations? Stipulations and concessions. And for folks at home that maybe weren't following this as closely, they essentially admitted that a woman who, by all accounts, hasn't made a website yet and is just contemplating making one and doesn't want to make one for gay couples, only straight couples. She says she's happy to serve gay people generally, but just doesn't want to do gay weddings. By all accounts could have been argued that she wasn't actually making something unique or artistic. She could have been, arguably, making something more off the shelf. Like if you went to Paper Source or Office Depot and got a wedding website template, that's not protected speech. And the Colorado Attorney General's office essentially concedes that she's making something expressive that's protected by the First Amendment, that she's even a public accommodation at all and would have been underneath the statute at all when they could have just said, you know what, like she's not actually going to be targeted in this at all. And therefore, we could have just avoided this whole thing. And they didn't do that. And again, totally understand the frustration with Gorsuch not confronting the dignity aspect of this, being treated like a second-class citizen. I totally understand people confused about all the parade of horribles that Justice Sotomayor offers without sort of grappling, again, with some of the ways that the First Amendment implications of this, I think, are significant. But the two sides almost felt like they were talking past each other on, on this case. And it's one of the, I think, more perplexing cases of the entire term. I'm surprised that they didn't just dismiss it as improvidently granted. I agree with Laura's point about the Colorado Attorney General's office and how they've escaped a lot of scrutiny for what they were willing to stipulate to, not only on standing, but beyond that. But one of the things that strikes me about these cases is 
we've moved really far away from the organic creation of Supreme Court litigation to a point where it's transparent even to lay people how easily these cases are manufactured and constructed by the Ed Blooms or Jonathan Mitchells of the world. Jonathan Mitchell is the architect of SB8 and the Texas abortion law that was before the court last year, and how much work folks like the Alliance Defending Freedom are doing to construct these disputes. Which was the group that ginned this whole thing up, right? Correct. Alliance Defending Freedom is behind 303. It's also behind the Mifepristone case. And, you know, their their construction or their manufacturing had to do with devising a group of physicians in Amarillo, Texas, so that they would have standing to challenge a two decades plus old approval of Mifepristone. But they're doing a lot of work in search of plaintiffs, in search of venue, in search of disputes that may not exist. And I'm glad, if only because, I'm certainly not glad for the results of this case, but I'm glad that the mainstream media is opening up a lens into how these cases come before the court and how, as Justice Sotomayor says, look, nothing about the facts of these cases has changed, right? This case, 303 Alenis, is not all that different from Masterpiece Cake Shop. It's really not functionally distinct. What's changed is the composition of the court and the things that advocates are doing in order to relitigate those cases effectively on slightly more advantageous facts, but also ones that strike some of us as fictitious, if not wholly manufactured. The only thing I was thinking is like so many, I'm from Denver and so many of these cases are emanating out of Colorado. (laughs) Why is that? Like, and is that a good thing? And how should I feel about that? Let me offer at least a tempered defense of my good friend, Phil Weiser, the attorney general, they they did have a lot of stipulated facts, but he has since said, A, it was a made-up case, to Lisa's point, and also what they stipulated to for her was that it was expressive conduct, and then they argued that doesn't that's not the same as actually compelled speech. I totally agree with you, Laura, that they're talking past each other, but the important point to me is the very arguments that Gorsuch and the court accepted were the ones that have been proffered in previous cases and rejected as against claims of discrimination when it's people who generally hold themselves out for business as opposed to what I think is the kind of phony baloney analogy that Gorsuch put out of artists whom you know don't serve everybody. So back even to the 60s where luncheonette owners were saying, this is going to violate my free speech rights because you're forcing me essentially to endorse segregation and I don't. So to me, just on the analysis, it's a huge potential wormhole. We'll see how it plays out. But remember, the court, like they did this in Dobbs too, they say, they give the sense of, and in the affirmative action, all right, so now it's all settled, everything is good, et cetera. But they could potentially let loose a wave of litigants. Someone's going to say, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Will the court ignore it? What will Court of Appeals do? Applying 303 Creative. It's not entirely up to them what comes of this decision they've given to the American people. All right. Let's take just a minute or two if people have thoughts about, you know, what is your overall take on the term, uh, you know, a huge route for conservatives. You're seeing the sort of perennial stories of, well, there were, you know, half the cases were unanimous, but, you know, that's always the case. Is this a complete route? I'll keep it that way for conservatives, or is it a more modulated story? Anybody? I think it's clear that this is 
a deeply conservative court that plans to make good on projects that it has had in the works for decades and that people should be clear-eyed about that. Doesn't mean, however, that there won't be surprises like on the Voting Rights Amendment, Section 2 that was sort of the last vestiges of what they have left to the Voting Rights Amendment. They decided not to completely gut that. They decided not to completely embrace the most aggressive theory about the role of state courts in this country to still be able to say what state constitutions mean when legislatures try to take it a step further. I think that just because they don't go all the way in those cases, sometimes that gets read as they're sort of being moderate. And I think that seems to miss the larger project here. And on something like what happened with affirmative action, and even to a certain extent what's going on in the student debt forgiveness case, I think it shows that this is a court that has a very specific worldview and doesn't mean that there won't be outliers there, but that they tend to make good on that. We tend to focus in media coverage on sort of the cases that surround hot button issues, particularly race, guns, abortion. But one of the things about this term that I find most dangerous and one other thing that I hope Americans can be clear eyed about is that one of the projects of this court and its conservatism is dismantling the regulatory state by Mm -hmm. saying that Congress is being too ambiguous or didn't intend to delegate to administrative agencies some of the authority that they had. I think that comes across most clearly in the student loan dispute, right, where there was lots of legislative language, as Justice Kagan points out, that could have lent itself to the solution that the Biden administration chose. And yet there's this tortured textualism in the majority opinion about the word wave or modify and basically saying Congress couldn't have possibly meant to do this. But the ways that they support that is by pointing to things like Nancy Pelosi's press conference in 2021, where she says, this clearly isn't what Americans want the Biden administration to do. If textualism is really doing the work for them, they don't need to quote the former speaker having a press conference to support that point. And my larger point is just this, that when you see cases like the student loan dispute, it's not just about a student loan program. It's really about the larger fabric of regulations and administrative agencies and American life and what they are empowered to do. And so in the name of standing up for Congress, what these folks are really trying to do is dismantle the ability of a president and his appointed agency heads to make regulations that affect all of our lives, particularly in the environmental realm. What I saw in that student loan decision was the foreshadowing of some really, really bad decisions to come, particularly in the environmental domain. Certainly, we saw that last term. We also saw that this term. But I think that foreshadows some really bad days to come with respect to the non-delegation doctrine and administrative law. I feel a little out of my depth here talking about the Supreme Court, but the one thing that I do think is interesting coming out of that, just to your point, is in this administration and future administrations, those decisions are just going to make it more challenging for the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel to come up with opinions to justify executive branch actions. That's not just going to affect Democrats. That's going to have a lasting impact on the Justice Department and you know how it prevails in these type of disputes. 
And what about, by the way, the first wave of conservatism like Antonin Scalia about, say, standing, legislative opinions, and executive power? I'll just make sort of two quick points. First, the arguments that prevailed were all the ones in all the cases that had been rejected in the past. And then second, to Laura and Lisa's point, the best example is maybe the major questions doctrine. It was unknown in judicial circles until Kavanaugh mentions it in a dissent a few years ago, but it was definitely workshopped in the Federalist Society. And let me say, I think the Federalist Society plays certain important roles in this country and conservative thought was silenced for a time, but it just has to be understood that these three cases from this term, Dodds from last term, are the consummation of dreams that were hatched out in the 80s and sort of beyond any possible hope then. You know, I'll, I'll end with Ed Whalen, a noted conservative, also a friend who just said this is the second biggest conservative term ever. Last year was the most and next year will be the third. <laughs> All right, we are out of time except for our Talking Five, which we take a question from a listener and we have to answer in five words or fewer. Picks up on what we've just been saying. How would you characterize the makeup of the Supreme Court now? Is it a 5-4 court, a 6-3 court, a 3-3-3 court, something else? How would you assess it in five words or fewer? I'll take a stab at it. Feels like haiku for lawyers. Ready? <laughs> Depends on the case. Donald Trump's most enduring legacy. So true. I was reading an interesting story today about how Kavanaugh sides with Roberts in like 95% of cases and that they're kind of like the court's fulcrum. So I was trying to play with that. But how about just like next term will be exciting. (laughs) Five words. (laughs) I've got another one. Wait, can I come back? Good, good, good. Go for it. Go for it. What would Leonard Leo do? Mm. There you have it. And I'm going with six, three big cases matter. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Laura, Lisa, and Sadie. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, we posted a conversation with Kelly Baden, the Vice President of Public Policy at the Guttmacher Institute, about the landscape of abortion litigation and abortion access for women across the country one year after the Dobbs decision overruling Roe versus Wade. Talking Feds remains a completely independent production. So if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, Joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. 
Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McCardle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.